Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Attention Cannabis Radio listeners. Do you suffer from chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or PTSD? These are the most common qualifying conditions for medical cannabis. Did you know that in many states you can visit a doctor online with no waiting rooms, no drive, not even an appointment needed? See a doctor right from your smartphone. It's fast, convenient, and it'll save you money as most states don't collect taxes on medical cannabis purchases. So what are you waiting for? Go to MarijuanaDoctors.com slash Cannabis Radio and get $5 off your on-demand medical card evaluation. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hemp Present. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to Hemp Present about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. My friends, I am Vivian McPeak, and this is Hem Present. If you have feedback and would like to suggest a guest or topic for Hem Present, email me at hempresentgmail.com. I greatly enjoy hearing from you, the listener. Today's guest on Hem Present is Alia Volts. Alia is the author of the new memoir, Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco, which is the winner of the Golden Poppy Award for Nonfiction from the California Independent Bookseller Alliance, and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography. A homegrown San Franciscan, Alia's work has been published by the Best American Essays, the New York Times, Bon Appetit, Salon, and the Best Women's Travel Writing. Her family story has been featured on Snap Judgment, Criminal, and NPR's Fresh Air. Her book, Home Baked, is available in hard copy or as an ebook read by the author wherever books are sold, but you can learn more about this cool memoir right here because I have Alia with me today. Welcome, Alia, to Canvas Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Um, your memoir, Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco, is your autobiography detailing your upbringing as the daughter of the larger-than-life founder of Sticky Fingers Brownies, an underground bakery that distributed 10,000 marijuana brownies per month 
throughout San Francisco during the 1970s and 80s. One review that I read referred to your book as, quote, a raunchy and rollicking account of the vanishing of a vanished area, which sounds like my kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> let's begin by having you tell us more about this story. Can you describe your parents to us and tell us a little bit about how they came up with the idea to create the Sticky Fingers operation? So my mom was raised in a middle-class Jewish household, very conservative. She came out to San Francisco in the early 1970s to explore other lifestyles, as so many people were doing at the time. And she was an artist and an illustrator struggling to make ends meet. Well, a friend invited her to take over a very small mobile bakery that was operating on Fisherman's Wharf, mostly selling straight goods with a few cannabis brownies in the mix. Well, my mom is a terrible cook to this day and was much more interested in the cannabis than the regular baked goods. So she, she took it over. Uh, she and her friends developed and honed the recipe. And by the time she met my dad a few months later, and by the time I was born in 1977, they were already distributing more than 10,000 brownies a month all over San Francisco through all the subcultures of the day. Wow, that's that's exciting. Now, this is all taking place in San Francisco in a time when the city was still a mecca for the post-60s uh, alternative culture. Uh, and, this, and this continued through the period where the AIDS crisis was emerging with cannabis intersecting all of those events. Can you tell us about the time period that this is all happening in? Absolutely. San Francisco in the 1970s was incredibly dynamic and frothy. All these people had come out uh, for the summer of love, which kind of turned out to be a media invention to begin with. But once all these young, free-spirited people got here, they went to seed and created new movements, new countercultural movements. Some of them uh, went down very dark roads, like the People's Temple that was here in San Francisco. And that ended, of course, in the Jonestown Massacre. Other things were extremely creative and dynamic and inventive. So my folks were very much central to this in San Francisco at the time. People were really thirsty for expansion, for new things. And the Brownies caught on. Um, San Francisco in the 70s was very much a hotbed of LGBTQ activism during the pre-AIDS era. And this was the core of my mom's client base. So when the AIDS crisis hit, and of course it hit us extremely hard in San Francisco, Sticky Fingers evolved very naturally into the dawn of the medical cannabis movement in California. So, so your mother was literally stashing her goods in your stroller, uh, which is very low low profile, yet wearing elaborate outfits, which is very high profile. Can, can you touch on your mother's innovative business plan? How did she pull off her illicit underground brownie business? How did she <laughs> operate? Uh, how did she operate? And what were the outfits like? Yeah. <laughs> so my folks came up with this idea of hiding in plain sight. They thought if they dressed... <laughs> in the most outlandish way possible that nobody, specifically police and narcs, would suspect them of committing felonies. And amazingly, it worked. So they would go out with headdresses and, and spandex and wild colors. And as my dad especially, God, he wore some really strange outfits, um, kind of like early club kids. And they documented it all in photographs. So I have this amazing trove of pictures of my parents looking insane. And my mom just took me everywhere with her. So I was the little brownie baby. And my earliest memories are of being on brownie runs with my mom in the Castro in the 70s in this really explosive 
vibrant period before the AIDS crisis hit and how, just how alive and loving and exuberant the neighborhood was at the time really sticks with me. Um, I would imagine that having a baby along gave my mom another level of coverage, but really they believed, they, they were operating on the theory that if you want people to ignore you, yell. That's, that's really fascinating. And if there's ever a time that you could blend in wearing flamboyant, garish uh, attire, uh, San Francisco in that time period was one of those places. And it just, you have to say, uh, Alia, it feels like a lot of the, the social issues that we're dealing with today, um, you can almost trace back to that time period and that, that area, um, you know, cannabis legalization, LGBTQ rights, uh, equity, racism, all that stuff. Um, is really some of it's kind of birthed from that that region. Absolutely, um, many people would be appalled and outraged by your story, you know, with the 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 brownies in the stroller. Yet, in one way, <laughs> your parents were sort of pioneers and visionaries. Uh, you know, looking back uh, now from the vindication that's come from the widespread acceptance of cannabis that's emerging. And some would argue that they were doing a major service to the community by offering access to the therapeutic aspects of cannabis. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, especially during the AIDS crisis. And as, as a child at that time, I was still going with my mom everywhere. And I saw people that we loved growing ill, many of them, we lost many of them. And, and I grew up seeing that. And I also grew up seeing how much the cannabis products were bringing them relief, how much they appreciated having, especially during, during that era, um, my mom took to doing a lot of home deliveries to people who were too sick to go out. So it really was a community service. And she also worked very closely with Dennis Perone. And of course, Brownie Mary was doing similar work at the same time. And so it really was the birth of what we think of today as the modern medical cannabis movement. And one of the primary reasons that I wrote Home Baked was that I was seeing that HIV AIDS activism was in a way, being erased from the conversation or being forgotten by a lot of people uh, and that younger generations perhaps were not aware of how important of a role LGBTQ plus activism played in the access to cannabis that we enjoy today. Right, right. Now, this, this started when you were obviously very young because you were in a stroller, but mm -hmm. it continued uh, through your adolescence. Were you aware of the fact that your parents were outlaws? Did your parents instruct you to keep quiet about their brownie business? I always knew. And I think it was one of the saving graces that we had this atmosphere of complete openness at home. I don't actually remember my parents telling me that we were outlaws. It was so, pardon the pun, baked into my understanding of who we were as people. Uh, also baked into that understanding was that we were good outlaws. So it was really important to my, to my parents to communicate to me that what we were doing was illegal but not wrong. And so I grew up with this really clear idea that the government did not always have our best interests at heart. Uh, and that sometimes you had, to just, you had to use your own moral compass to decide what was fair, what was appropriate, and what was good. And for my family, working in cannabis was experienced as a service, an illegal service, but a service all the same to the community. So I did grow, I did grow up having to keep secrets. Of course, this 
was at times hard for me as a kid in school, especially during the Reagan era drug war. There were the dare to keep kids off drugs programs and all of that kind of um, anti-cannabis propaganda that was so common at the time. So it was hard at, at times, but I also really understood that what my folks were doing was not wrong. Are your parents alive today? They are. What do they think of your book? They love it. Uh, they love it. It, um, it has been revelatory, I think, for both of them in different ways. My mom, I will say, is, is talked about a lot these days as a pioneer, but she never thought of herself that way. She was simply making daily decisions about what she thought was right and how to survive and how to support her family, right? Uh, looking back on it, she's finally able to see that she was one of the first people to create and operate a, a cannabis business on this scale and especially bridging that transition from the days of, of, of cannabis as a party drug to the days of cannabis as palliative medicine. Uh, we have a little over a minute till the first break. Um, you mentioned, of course, the, that the medical cannabis movement was arguably arguably born in San Francisco during this period with Dennis Perone and Mary Jane Rathburn, known as Brownie Mary, uh, doing this groundbreaking activism. Uh, and your father was a grandma epileptic. Did your parents know about the therapeutic powers of cannabis in treating seizure disorders? Did your father use cannabis medicinally? In the period that we're talking about, the late 70s through the early to mid 80s, cannabis was not being used, certainly not on a wide scale in the treatment of certain kinds of epilepsy. And even today, it is only certain kinds of epilepsy that have responded to it. Mm -hmm. So the particular type that my dad had, has, I don't think responded to cannabis in that way. Uh, and they were not thinking of it as being therapeutic in that sense. That really did in a lot of ways emerge out of the HIV AIDS crisis. People were using it for glaucoma and for chemotherapy related nausea before that. But it was, it was the, the AIDS crisis that really made the understanding, the connection between the, the very the the many medicinal properties of cannabis and uh, and at home palliative treatment clear. Got it. Got it. I am speaking to Alia Volz, the author of Home Baked: My Mom Marijuana Marijuana and the Stoning of San Francisco. And I'm not on marijuana right now, but I'm having trouble saying the word. We're going to take a quick break and come back with our second segment and really dive in. So don't go anywhere. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. We're back to Hemp Present, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. We're back on Hemp Present with Alia Volts. Um, Alia, you mentioned Brownie Mary, um, who has become a legend in the cannabis reform and medical cannabis movements. Did your mother know or work with Brownie Mary? And do you think 
or does she feel that Brownie Mary somewhat stole her thunder or were your parents trying to stay under the radar and seeking anonymity? Uh, I mean, Brownie Mary was busted several times. Your mother managed to avoid that. So I love this question. The first answer is my parents were trying to stay under the radar. And at this point in the story, my mom is flying solo. My parents are divorced and very conscious of the fact that she had me at, at home. She wanted to keep out of the limelight. Her contribution was to keep the cannabis flowing to the people who needed it. She worked very closely with Dennis Perone over the years, but for the longest time didn't meet Mary. And what was funny was that because my mom is named Mare and she was uh, she started a little earlier than Brownie Mary did. She was known as Mare the Brownie Lady. Then Brownie Mary came along and people immediately had them confused. Uh, people they knew had them confused. And, there, and, and my mom and others have theorized that part of why she didn't get busted was that the police may well have thought that Brownie Mary was responsible for all of it. And poor thing, she got busted again and again. They finally met at a party at Dennis Perone's, uh, one of Dennis Perone's cannabis clubs in the 90s. And the first thing they said to one another was, uh, Mayor said, or Mary said, you're the one who never got busted. And my mom said, and you're the one who always did. And then they hugged. Oh. It's kind of a great moment. Wow. So that's almost a convenient coincidence um, in a sense. Uh, <laughs> convenient and, and, for my mom, perhaps, not so much for Mary. Well, it seems like Brownie Mary was really doing aggressive activism and your mother was really focused on getting the medicine to the patients. Of course, so was right. Mary and, and Dennis. And I knew Dennis Prone very well. Mm. Um, was a friend of mine and we tragically mm -hmm. lost him not long ago. Um, I'm curious, what was it like researching this book? Did you go and track down various characters from the old days? And if so, what was that like? Really kind of fabulous. And, and yes, I interviewed more than 60 people from this book. It started out very close to home. Before I even knew I was writing a book, I started recording my mom's stories, some of my favorites that she tells, because I, I thought I wanted to have them in her voice. But I had questions. And then my mom would say, well, you should ask your dad about this, or you should ask so-and-so. And then that person would lead me to more people who would lead me to more people. So it was exponential. And by the end of it, I'm talking with police officers, you know, which was uh, <laughs> something that I was raised not to do. Um, but people were really, to me at the time, surprisingly open with their memories. And a lot of folks who survived the AIDS crisis were really, it was meaningful to them to be able to tell stories about their, their loved ones lost and, and what that was like. And, and so I found there was a lot, of, a lot of enthusiasm within the communities for bringing these stories to the fore. Because of course, when our elders pass, their stories pass with them. You know, and this was an opportunity to preserve some of those stories. And it is, it's so cool that this story is being chronicled um, for, for future generations because this is such an important and groundbreaking time of transformation. Uh, but, but today, uh, Alia, the, the cannabis industry, like most other American industries, is dominated by white males. And there's this term, the grass ceiling, which is a takeoff on the glass ceiling, mm -hmm. which is a description of the tendency for women to meet obstacles to ascending in the business world. Um, while your mother was operating a female-owned cannabis business many decades before there was any legal industry at all. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on that? So one of the things that I wanted to push against with this book is the notion that women are somehow new to cannabis business. Because in the, in the Northern California cannabis milieu that I grew up in, 
many of the dealers and growers were women. And women had a very strong presence in cannabis business at that time. Now it has evolved and today, Cannabis is so uh, intertwined with venture capitalism and financial backing and the power is shifting into, into the hands of, of white men. And this is something that we as, as consumers and activists absolutely must combat. As, and certainly in the sense that uh, people of color who consistently have been the targets and have paid the highest price in, in the various iterations of the drug war, it is absolutely imperative that these groups have access to legal cannabis today. I think that's where the, the greatest work is ahead of us. Alia, I'll be forthright to share that I grew up within the black market cannabis culture myself. Mm. Um, and I see many trade-offs between the cannabis culture of the old illicit underground dealer days and today's kind of impersonal over-the-counter retail sales environment. Do you have that same sense at all? Absolutely. So I often talk about my childhood as being this really wonderful community experience because it was. My mom's customers would come over, they'd hang out, uh, on, on the bed, we called it the barge, where, where my mom had her hangout sessions and people would come over and stay for hours. And this was our community. There was a lot of love and support. And I, I was always welcome there as a child. And today in California, where I am, you can order cannabis through an app and a stranger shows up, doesn't give you their name. Maybe they're wearing a lanyard or a company shirt and they're gone and, and in less than a minute. So there's definitely a trade-off. At the same time, you can't argue with this kind of access, especially during COVID. Right, right. You know, San Francisco is just a very different place today. It has been severely gentrified. Uh, and in the many decades that have followed uh, from the time period of your book, there's been significant cultural and demographic shifts. I, I, your book seems to me like somewhat of a time capsule detailing San Francisco during kind of a, a golden age of the city. And, and I guess for some of us, a golden age of culture? Yes, I would say that was true. And in a lot of ways I talk about, I talk about this book sometimes as, uh, as the memoir part of it, the this is my life growing up, being sort of the Trojan horse to sneak all of the history in that I wanted to share about the, so, the, the cultural and social and activist movements that were really thriving in San Francisco in the 70s and 80s. But I want to say that it's not all a rosy picture of one of the events that happens during this period is that Harvey Milk comes to power and then is assassinated, right? There's the tragedy at Jonestown. Um, there was quite a bit of bigotry still in San Francisco and homophobic bigotry in San Francisco. So it was a much more complex era and I, than, than I think many people realize. So I wanted to bring it, um, I wanted to bring it to people in all of its complexity and not the kind of simplified peace and love version that right. often gets sold to us. Yeah, there was, there was, there was a dark side to the whole hate Ashbury experience you know, with addiction and homelessness and even exploitation and stuff. So mm -hmm. definitely it's, it's definitely, it's a, it's a balanced story. Mm -hmm. um, no doubt. Um, your mother pivoted to home delivery, excuse me, during the AIDS crisis as patients were too incapacitated to leave the home. And you just kind of touched on that that somewhat mirrors the conditions today during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that? 
It was really interesting because I, I mean, I've been working on this book for a decade. <laughs> so uh, the themes of the, the HIV AIDS crisis, the government response to that, then the community response to the government response or lack thereof, those themes are really resonant with, with what's happening today. But I didn't know this was going to happen. <laughs> I didn't foresee launching this book during a pandemic. Uh, another aspect that is, is very resonant is all of the LGBTQ plus activism and the police brutality against that community during that time mirrors some of the social unrest that we are seeing today and the government suppression of it. Um, so there, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of resonance and readers have reached out to me consistently through this um, to talk about how helpful it was to see this, this period in our recent history when many of the same issues were coming to the fore. And we can look at it now with, with some hindsight and, and understand what was happening. It helps us understand what's happening today. It is time to take another break. Here, word from our sponsors and advertisers, and we're going to come right back with our final questions for Alia Volts. So don't go anywhere. Time to roll out for the people that let us hemp present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. We're back to Hemp Present, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we're back with our final questions for Alia Volz. Um, Alia, your book sounds like a fascinating firsthand report uh, on a pivotal period in the advancement and formation of the modern medical cannabis movement, as well as a, a, a sneak peek inside of the 1970s and 80s San Francisco scene. Uh, while we still have a few moments left to speak, is there anything that you'd like to add or leave our w- listeners with? Well, I would love to let everyone know, know that Home Baked is coming to paperback on the high holiday 420. And um, there will be a bunch of events surrounding that. And you can find all of that information on my website, which is www.aliavolts.com. Great. What, what, I'm just curious, uh, what, what have you learned from, from this process of doing the book? How has this book changed the way that you look at your parents uh, and, and maybe the whole cannabis scene. What's your, what's your final takeaway? My experience in writing it is that it, it, it brought me a lot closer to both of my parents and to really understand what the world of their youth was like, what they've gone through in that generation. It also was extremely important to me to spend time with survivors of the HIV AIDS crisis, which is really, uh, it's really like a war generation 
you know? And right. um, so I've gained a new appreciation for um, the courage of the generation preceding mine, truly. And, uh, and uh, an invigoration in my determination to live, live in such a way that's going to leave, you know, a legacy for the next generation. Right, right. What, what do your parents think about the situation with cannabis today? I mean, states are legalizing left and right. Um, and now, you know, governors and, and legislatures are just doing it. Uh, we, we really are at a turning point. You, mm. What do your parents think about all this? For the most part, they're very happy to see it. It's about time. <laughs> it was about time decades ago that <laughs> that people be able to access cannabis without risking their freedom, and also that the the medical community be able to properly research uh, the the properties of cannabis. Because I think we've really just scratched the surface with that. So, of course, necessary to that is finally descheduling it on the on the federal level to uh, to give working scientists access to funding uh, for, for their research projects. That's another story. But there is also, again, as we've talked about, a loss in the closeness of the underground cannabis community. And there's also, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but the small farmers, certainly up in Northern California, are really suffering and for the most part, not able to access the benefits of modern cannabis. And so there really is a, a loss where the, the people most harmed by the drug war are being shut out of the current iteration of cannabis. At the same time, it is, it is very hopeful to see the, domino, the dominoes fall. And I think my parents agree with all of that. I think that's a great place to, to leave it. Uh, Alia Voltz, author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Thank you so much for your time. What a fascinating story. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. You take care. You too. That concludes this installment of in on Cannabis Radio. When it comes to prohibition, you have the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find your voice and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Stay strong, my friends, and please get personally involved in the struggles to end federal cannabis prohibition and the fight for equity and social justice. Now it's time to turn up the music maestro because I'm out. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.